Chapter Twenty of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear, Chapter Twenty, The Fourth Visitation. O'Hara stood on the macadamized drive beneath the same tree from which Genghis Khan had reached for his throat two nights ago. McClellan alone was with him, for at the last moment Rhodes had received a telephone call from his partner. That line was in working order, after all, begging that he come in town at once on a matter of considerable business importance. O'Hara urged him to go, and in the end he did, but with a promise to join them later if possible. So they had run down to the city in Rhodes' car, dropped its owner at his office, set Forrester down at City Hall, his superior having denied any need of the young man loafing away any more time on this job, and proceeded straight to Carpentier. O'Hara was his own chauffeur, and he had McClellan in the tonneau, so at least he was spared any converse with him during the trip. Once at the bungalow, however, the detective gave his tongue and his opinions a loose rein. As he had told them, this fresh bit of apparently objectiveless destruction bore a broad resemblance to the earlier attempt, save that this time its perpetrators had left no visible trace of themselves save their work. Every room in the house had been visited, as if by a small invading whirlwind. An indiscriminating whirlwind, too, that had scattered and smashed with no regard for relative values. A finely carved and heavily constructed sideboard, which had escaped the first visitation, had been broken to bits in the most difficult and painstaking manner. But equally the cheap deal-table, at which Cullen had taken supper the night before, lay about the kitchen in well-nigh unidentifiable fragments. In the bedroom that had been first Cleona's and then Cullen's, nothing had been touched except the bed, and that was irrevocably smashed, even to the twisted mass of wire which had been the springs. So everywhere things common and valuable were broken or left intact with a whimsicality of choice that distinguishes those three insentient destroyers, fire, storm, and concussion. Yet there were no signs of an explosion, no fire had raged here, and though a storm there had been, it must have been a strange one to have shattered windows and doors, ravaged inner rooms, and left roof and walls uninjured. The milkman's statement that he came up to leave the milk and found no place to leave it was not entirely unfounded. His custom had been to put O'Hara's quart bottle of the healthful fluid on the front steps, but these steps, which were wooden, had been torn away and lay some distance off. Every one of the veranda windows was broken, sash and all, and the door was flat and in two pieces. Having gloomily inspected the remains of his premises, Cullen stood in the dining-room and listened with acute boredom to McClellan's views. Something small and bright-colored caught his eye, and stooping he plucked it from amidst the sideboard's debris. It was the last surviving remnant of that unfortunate Aztec godling, the head, minus its mitre, and part of the red and blue tunic. Cullen stared grimly down at the still patiently smiling face. "'So they got you at last, little man,' he muttered half-abstractedly. The face smiled on, patient forever with the blindness of mankind. "'What's that?' demanded McClellan. "'Nothing.' Cullen tossed the fragment aside and led the way toward the door. 
Just a bit of pottery that was worth a few thousand before we began receiving midnight callers. There's no luck to this house. No luck at all. I shall live here no more. Drop the case, or keep on with it as you like. It's a matter of no further interest to myself." This annoyed McClellan. It annoyed him more than O'Hara's insistence that he solve the previous case. There could be drawn an inference that the Irishman had lost all faith in his ability to solve anything whatever, but in that he was mistaken. O'Hara could not lose what he had never possessed. "'We shall continue to investigate,' he declared with stolid dignity. "'We have sent word down the line to round up every hobo between here and headquarters, and—hobos!' The ejaculation had a quality of bitter scorn that dissipated the last of McClellan's patience. "'Yes, hobos,' he snapped. "'If you're so sure that I don't know anything, then you have some good reason for being sure. When you get ready to tell it, let me know. I'm going back by train. Good day.' Cullen viewed his retreating figure with wide, amused eyes. "'And that's the only really clever thing he ever said in his life.' Good day to you, Mr. McClellan. Sure, I'll let you know, but not until I'm ready." The detective, on his early morning visit, had again called out a patrolman to stand guard over O'Hara's possessions, and there he stood, McClellan having departed in too great a rage to remember his patient sentinel. "'Go or stay as you please,' said O'Hara to the officer. "'I'll send up a man presently to pack what's left worth packing and ship it in town.' I doubt if I'll return here myself." "'I'll see that your man makes a good job,' volunteered the policeman agreeably. O'Hara had just slipped a bit of green paper into his willing hand, extended for that purpose, perhaps from habit, discreetly and with back half-turned. "'Thanks. I wish you would.' As Cullen climbed into the driving seat of his borrowed car he gave a last glance about the now desolate hilltop. Here and there strayed some idle and amateur seekers of clues. A reporter or so, ruthlessly repelled by the gloom-stricken Irishman, still hovered hungrily in the offing. One individual hurried toward him as he started the car. Had Cullen looked he would have seen a lean, worn-looking man, white-haired with the mark of an old scar across his lower forehead. "'Mr. O'Hara,' he called. "'Hey there! O'Hara! Wait a minute!' "'Go to the devil with the rest of them,' muttered Cullen without even a glance, and fairly shot out of hearing. He wanted to get away from it all. He had by no means surrendered hope of achieving a final solution. In fact, he was grimly certain that the solution would not be much longer delayed. But he was sick of the bungalow, sick of everything. No matter if he exposed Reed as the deus ex machina of these lawless manifestations, no matter if in exposing him he discovered the reason of Reed's grudge, if he had one. No matter even if for one reason or another the killing of Marco should be publicly applauded as a righteous act, though that last seemed to him unlikely enough. No matter for anything. Was he not indeed linked by a golden thread to the one girl in the world for him, and was she not hopelessly, unquestionably insane? He determined that he would not go back to Green Gables. She was safe in his sister's keeping, and he determined that before yielding himself to the police he would have one final interview with Reed, providing, that is, that he could easily locate him. 
Yet before going on that errand, he brought the car to a halt before Bradshaw's shop, entered, and with a nod to the storekeeper made for the little telephone booth. But Bradshaw halted him. "'Say, Mr. O'Hara, your sister called up a while ago. Said the bungalow line was out of order. Did you find out? Did Mrs. Rhodes want me then? How long ago was that?' Oh, about an hour, more or less, the first time. She's called twice since, and says for you to phone her right away. Did that detective fellow— Why didn't you send up the hill after me? demanded O'Hara indignantly. Nobody to send. Been looking around for a boy, but they're all up round your place, I guess. Did you find out I did not? O'Hara disappeared in the booth, banging the door in poor Bradshaw's aggrieved face. That is, he tried to bang it but the booth never having been built for his bulk, the attempt was a miserable failure. In an uncomfortably stooped position, Cullen went through the customary struggle to get green gables from Carpentier through a matter of three exchanges, and in the end was rewarded by Cleona's voice on the wire. She had been waiting anxiously for the call, and before he could ask a question she imparted her news. "'Cullen, she's gone!' "'What? Who's gone?' but he knew very well. That Miss Reed, or whoever she was, she's gone, and I've been trying to get you for nearly two hours. Where have you been?" "'Hare,' Cullen's voice was a trifle hoarse. Of course they would find her again, she had wandered away, but he would find her. Again Cleona was speaking. She had, it appeared, seen her guest safely bestowed in the bedroom assigned to her use, and herself gone to lie down for a short time. When she returned to offer the girl a cup of tea, the room was empty. She was nowhere in the house and her coat had also disappeared. And, Cullen, she had taken that dreadful green dress again. Taken it? She didn't wear it? I, I'm afraid she did. The clothes I gave her were on the bed. They were laid out very nicely and in order, Cullen, dear. She must have had a beautiful bringing up. Never mind consoling me, Cleona. What have you done to find her? It seemed she had sent every one of the servants to search the neighborhood, and had tried to get in touch with him before notifying the police. And three reporters had been there already about the bungalow, and the servants had all returned with news, and she had waited and waited. "'Yes, to be sure. But do you tell me, darling, did she say anything to you before you left her? Tell me word for word all she said. I may get some trace of her by it. Let me think. I asked her about her father, but she would tell me nothing. She said that already she loved me, but only to you would she speak. She said, I have seen kindness in the eyes of others than you, but it has been the mockings of the shadow people. They went and returned not, but between me and my lord hangs a golden thread, and therefore there is trust between us. Something like that. I'm trying to remember exactly, but— You've a wonderful memory and you're doing fine. And then? Well, she seemed disturbed because you had gone to Carpentier and asked me to take her and follow you. Then she said she left the reception hall because you disliked the fat, clean man, Mr. McClellan, I suppose, so much that you were making her hate him. She hates Marco, and you, you struck him. And she thought that striking Marco had made you sad, she knew not why. So she went away lest you strike the fat, clean man also. Forgive me, Colin, but you wanted to know exactly. And so I do. Then? That was all. 
when I wouldn't take her after you, she asked me to lie down in her room, and she did. She was so perfectly nice and pleasant that I never, never thought. And why would you? There's no blame at all to you, darling." His exoneration of Cleona was quite mechanical, a matter of habit, for in truth his thoughts were not on her. From head to foot he thrilled with a bitter, uncanny joy that shocked but refused to be banished by his reasoning mind. She had felt his dislike for McClellan, sensed and sympathized with it to the point of hatred, in the same way that he had flamed to deadly, unjustifiable passion for her sake. What fire was this in which fleshly barriers melted and their two spirits fused? A dangerous blaze, surely, that expressed itself only in hate. No, that was the chance of unlucky circumstance. What opportunity had there been for happiness to leap between them? Oh, all madness, madness! Somewhere in him there must lurk a weak, abnormal strain that responded to her insanity. He forced thought of it from him as something to be faced another time, and resolutely set his mind to the present exigency. Don't be telling the police, yet. I've an idea where she may have gone. Had she any money, do you think? How do I know? wailed his harassed sister. She might have had some in her coat. Cleona, do take your mind off this business entirely. I'm the one that's responsible for her, and it's myself that will find the poor lass. If any more reporters or detectives come bothering you, have masters send them about their business. All will be well, and twill be less than a help should you fret yourself into another sickness. Call up Tony at the office and tell him I'm leaving Carpentier, and he had best return straight home when he can, so I'll know where to find him. Will you do all that for me, darling?" "'Where are you going?' her voice hinted of indefinite alarm. Well, the railroad station would be a good place to seek first trace of her, don't you think?" Perhaps, yes, I believe you're right, Colin, and then try the police stations. She's certainly quiet and well-behaved enough one way, but you can't tell what she might do outside and alone. Then will you come home, whether you find her or not?" Oh, I'll come home. Good-bye, Cleona, and mind all I told you." He hung up the receiver without waiting for a reply. Having purposely misled her in regard to the direction his search would take, he wished to answer no more questions. There was one place to which his dusk lady, had she been of sound mind, would have been supremely unlikely to return. Being what she was, in O'Hara's opinion, that was the first covert to draw. She had expressed to Cleona alarm for his safety and a desire to follow him. Danger and the house at Undine must be to her synonymous terms. There she had known misery and terror, there she had barely escaped the clutches of danger carnified in the person of Genghis Khan, there she had seen him, O'Hara, kill a man and felt vicariously his own after-horror. There, then, if she thought of danger, would she picture him, and since she wished to follow him it was to Reed's house that she would straightway go. It was sketchy theorizing, perhaps but Cullen had been trained in a rough school that turns out excellent and not often mistaken psychologists. He swung out of Bradshaw's and almost into the arms of the white-haired man who had followed him down the hill. "'Mr. O'Hara,' he began again, but Cullen brushed ruthlessly past. "'I've nothing to say,' he flung back. 
he had an impression that the persistent journalist sprang after him, tried to get a foothold on the running-board, and fell. But his thoughts were a rushing torrent that fairly bore him with them. The outer consciousness that repulsed the man and set the car in motion was as mechanical as the motor itself. And so went Cullen's last chance of escape from that which awaited him, swept under by the impetuous nature that no experience could lessen, that would be still impetuous to the very hour of its death. The road to Undine was well enough known to him when he was not led cross-country. The big car ate up those few miles at reckless speed. Of course, there was a possibility that the lost maiden might have started for home in a vague, wandering way, without the wits or the money to reach it. But O'Hara deemed otherwise. The cleverness of lunacy is notorious, and who knew how familiar she might be with ways and means of getting about the city. Ten minutes after leaving Carpentier, he pulled up with a jerk at the iron gates upon whose intricate beauty he gazed for the fourth time in two days. It was then after five o'clock, and dusk was spreading its mantle of indistinctness and mystery. Behind those iron scrolls the gate-lodge loomed as a dim, sepulchral mass. O'Hara was out of the car almost before it had stopped, and at the gate in two long strides. But with his hand on the bell he paused. The thought of another clandestine intrusion on these premises was distasteful. He wanted to ring the bell and make his demands boldly of whoever should answer. But would anyone answer? Why had he so taken it for granted, because of last night's havoc at the bungalow, that Reed had never gone further from home than Carpentier, that the note transmitted by Marco's hand contained a lie? What if, up there at the house, whose gray roofs so melted into the gray dusk as to be invisible behind their screen of skeleton boughs, what if no one was there save the monster ape and Marco, Marco, deaf forever to the ringing of that or any earthly bell? Had Reed returned from however nefarious an expedition, would his own criminal proceedings have stopped him from sending out a general alarm, that the slayer of his servant and the abductor of his daughter might be immediately traced? And it would have been so easy to trace him. Surely even McClellan could have picked up that trail, followed so obvious a clue as the conductor's story. But if Reed were not at his farm, if no one were there save Genghis Khan, and it had been he who caused Marco's body to vanish so disturbingly, then the girl could not be there either. Had she come, there was no one to admit her. Ah, stupidity! What of that open storehouse door through which Cullen himself had showed her the way? And if she had gone in, had found Khan there, alone, masterless? Filled with an increasing horror of possibilities conjured up by his own imagination, O'Hara laid his hand on the gate, shaking it slightly, and at that light impulsion it swayed inward an inch or so. The loud complaint of its hinge smote his ears like a blow. The gate was unlocked. Anyone might have entered here, anyone. Half reluctantly, like a man who approaches some sight too terrible for human bearing, O'Hara pushed the gate wider and set his foot on the sodden leaves of the drive. He had left that house left the man-ape loose there and given no warning that should save any harmless intruder from its unrestrained and cunning savagery. He knew what reward had been meted out to him, the double offender, knew it as though the torn, dismembered body of his dusk lady lay at his feet. 
Yet, since he must, he entered and turned his footsteps toward the unseen house. Tonight there was no wind, only silence, intense, painful as an evil dream, which the soft sound of wet leaves beneath his feet only served to make more lifeless. A thin haze had risen from the sodden ground, so that about him there was neither light nor darkness, only gray neutrality from which gaunt trees lifted their skeleton tracery against a sky only a little brighter than the mist below. Yet objects close at hand were still discernible. He passed the vine-hidden gate-lodge, and as he did so, and because of the general stillness, a sound reached his ears, a just perceptible rustling, as of wood gently rubbed upon wood. Whirling quickly, he stared through the thin haze toward the inner wall of the lodge. From where he stood, ten feet away, its outlines were somewhat blurred, its vines a mass without detail. And yet he was almost sure that, again, as on that first night, a blacker oblong had appeared in the dark wall of vines. Then, and for the first time in his life, O'Hara learned the meaning of stark, horrible fear. Fear that shut his throat against breath, and turned the strength of his giant limbs to water. In the center of that vague black oblong, faintly gleaming through the mist by a pallid light of its own, appeared an oval shape that swayed slightly from side to side the oval of the gatekeeper's barely visible countenance. And to Cullen the gatekeeper was Marco, and Marco lay dead by Cullen's hand. Had the Irishman been given time to reflect, time to set the stern clamp of reason on his slipping faculties, what followed might have happened differently. But time was not granted. The oval wavered and rose a foot or so, then shot itself outward straight for O'Hara's face. He screamed out, loud and harsh, twisting his head to one side. Something struck his neck a terrible blow, and the gray mist flared red about him to vanish, roaring, into blank unconsciousness. He was lying beneath the sea, lapped in the slimy ooze of its deepest profundity. He could feel the rocking of his body to some slow, dense current and the awful pressure of the depths crushed the flesh inward upon his vital organs, squeezing out the very life. Yet struggling to breathe. Why, he could breathe, though shortly. He felt the air in his nostrils. How was that? Was there air on the sea-bottom? With that question, awakening reason dissipated the dream and roused him from unconsciousness. But the pressure it did not dissipate, nor the slow rocking motion. With an effort he forced open his eyes. It was night. He was lying on the ground somewhere in the open air, for he was looking upward through mist not dense enough to obscure the larger stars. His mind, still dazed, refused at once to resume the business of life. Marco? Marco? What was it concerning Marco? Reluctantly, then with gathering power, memory took up its office showing him the day as he had lived it, action by action and scene by scene, till it brought him to an iron gate, the lodge within, the face that had hung poised in the doorway, unbearable horror of its flashing out at him, then that great blow, and darkness. But what after that? Why was he lying here, with body and limbs surrounded by some strange, tightening substance? Heavily, 
he raised his head. He saw his own chest as a dim, whitish mass that seemed to stir with a slow, creeping motion. And now he knew that continually, through the paralyzing pressure, he had felt that sluggish creep-creep of the thing about him. There was a pounding in his ears, his temples throbbed and his eyes were dim with a suffusion of blood. But he perceived that the coiled mass round his chest was becoming faintly luminescent, that it was by its own light he saw the flat broadness of the coil nearest his face, noted with a great effort of attention its thin edge and the translucent parallel corrugations of its upper surface. Like the body of a worm it was, seen by transmitted light, a gigantic, living, shining worm that had no right to existence, even in a bad dream. And it was around him. He felt its naked coldness pressed against the skin of his right wrist, where the sleeve had been pushed above the protecting leather of his heavy glove. The coils tightened, contracted, with that continual revolting deliberation of movement, that drawing together and expanding of the corrugations that each time slid them a little further along. From chest to feet this thing had wrapped itself about him, and still rocked him gently to its leisurely and sliding compassion. The luminance of its body was not constant, but increased and faded, increased and faded in a long, slow pulsation. Letting his head fall back on the sodden leaves, he strove to move his limbs, to struggle. It was like straining against tight, thick rubber that gave a little but overcame the resistance of his deadened muscles simply by pressure. Then came the worst, for up from beneath his left shoulder a head rose and stretched itself on a thin, flat, tapering neck. It was a head that seemed mostly mouth, a great triangular aperture, gaping, tongueless with soft drooping lips, and behind it on either side a fleck of red that might have been eyes or their remnants. It reared a good two feet above Cullen's face, and he, staring, saw that its underside was dark, opaque, and that it was only from its upper surface that the light came. Then the head drooped and lowered, the neck curved backward. For one instant, there was presented that same pale shimmering oval which had hung in the doorway, and that he had believed to be Marco's dead face. It descended with a swift, darting motion, and Cullen felt flabby lips muzzling at his neck. A dreadful, groaning cry rang in his ears, and he did not know that it was his own voice. He writhed in that close embrace, and its flat, contractible coils tightened around his chest till the lungs collapsed and could no longer expand themselves, till he could utter not so much as a whisper of sound. Mental torment gave way to acute physical pain, and that again to the merciful blankness of negation. End of chapter 20《Chapter 21 of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear Chapter 21 Cleona Meets a Stranger I don't care, Tony. It's well enough for you to bid me not to worry, but how can I help worrying? Now, my dear, you're letting your nerves run away with you. Cullen is in no danger of anything worse than getting himself locked up, 
and he will hardly do that intentionally before he has located this girl again. I wish, though, that you felt free to let me notify the police. That would—he particularly said not, and it would be not right for us to go against his wishes. Very well, dear, I don't want to betray Cullen's trust in you. It's only eight o'clock now, and—he said he thought he knew where to find her? He meant to try the railway stations first, and—there's the bell now, Tony, maybe he's come home. I sincerely hope so. More trouble for Cleona than for her brother, whom he considered well able to take care of himself, Rhodes forestalled the servant by himself going to the door. He flung it open, but instead of Cullen's welcome bulk, the slighter figure of a stranger confronted him. By the entrance light, Rhodes saw that he was a man with a worn, scarred, anxious face, and the hair that showed under his hat was snowy white. "'Is Mr. O'Hara here?' "'Why do you wish to see him?' fenced Rhodes. They had been on guard all day against reporters. "'An extremely important matter, that is. Pardon me, entirely personal. If you will give him my card, I think he will see me.' Still hesitant, Rhodes took the extended card. The name was strange to him, but Cullen's friends were wide-scattered, and by no means all known to his brother-in-law. "'Mr. O'Hara is not in.' he said. But his sister is here. Would you care to speak with her? I must find O'Hara!" The stranger's voice was vehement with some irrepressible emotion. For heaven's sake, let me talk to his sister, then. Perhaps she will help me to get in touch with him. Surprised, Rose nevertheless stood aside for the man to enter. He hoped that nothing new was coming up to increase Cleona's anxiety. On the other hand, with Cullen's affairs in such a state of tension, he dared not turn the man away unheard. Then he found that Cleona herself was at his shoulder. "'Who is it?' she whispered. "'Someone for Cullen?' "'Someone to see Cullen.' He turned again to the stranger. "'Come in, won't you? This is Mr. O'Hara's sister, Mrs. Rhodes. Cleona, this is Mr.' He glanced at the bit of pasteboard in his hand. "'Mr. Sven Bjornsson.' a friend of your brother's." For the second time Cullen returned to sense and life. He came to with the taste and sting of liquor in his aching throat, and was at first conscious only of the extreme pain attached to the act of swallowing. Then the cup was no longer against his teeth, and some support removed itself so that his head fell back rather sharply. That slight jolt hurt, hurt terribly, but it also aroused his resentment. "'You!' the voice from between his stiff lips was a hoarse whisper. "'What? What you trying do?' From somewhere above him came the sound of a low, amused chuckle, but no other reply. He was lying flat, and there was still pressure against his chest and body, though it was no longer so deadly unendurable. But though vapors were still above him, no stars shone through them. In fact, those vapors seemed curiously lighted from below, and he had an impression that beyond and above them something more solid than vapor intervened between him and the open sky. The humid air breathed stiflingly close and heavy, an unspeakable atmosphere, in which an odor like that of putrescence mingled with a stronger murkiness. He might have wakened in a den of reptiles, where half the inhabitants were very much deceased, or 
a comparatively faint whiff of air like this had scented the storehouse which was also a passage to the banks of Llewellyn Creek. Striving with all his will, fairly forcing his muscles to obedience, Cullen managed to raise his head and shoulders an inch or so, then fell back exhausted. "'Take your time,' advised a voice. "'You can hardly expect to meet such an adversary as my little gatekeeper and leap up in full strength immediately afterward.' Cullen knew that voice. "'Chesser, read,' he articulated with great difficulty, but a weaker man would have been past any speaking, for he would have been dead some time since. "'Is that thing on me now?' "'No. I assure you, though, that it was touch and go whether or not I could get him off in time. A bit more, and your veins would have been empty, my friend.' Certainly, as a rescuer, Reed had a curious way of speaking, a sneering, contemptuous way that seemed to hide a secret insult. And his veins? The sight of Cullen's throat felt swollen, and just where shoulder and neck joined there was a heavy, dull aching. That heavy blow on the neck would account for the one, but the other? He remembered the feel of those soft, cold lips between neck and shoulder. Here, have another drink. Leaning over, Reed set a glass to his patient's lips, and Cullen gladly obeyed. The fiery strength of the draught coursed through him, and it was a strength sadly needed. "'You are in my workroom,' said Reed. "'Sit up and look about you.' Upon again struggling to raise himself, and with Reed's arm under his shoulder, Cullen succeeded and sat panting heavily. An earlier suspicion was confirmed. From shoulder to forearm he was skillfully involved in thin, strong ropes. This did not greatly surprise him, for Reed's tone had carried its own warning of unpleasantness in store, and if the dust lady had come home she might in all innocence have related the tale of last night's doings. One expects no discretion of madness. But though finding himself a bound prisoner roused no surprise, the surroundings of his captivity assuredly did. The scene was laid in the extensive cellars of the Girard House, but the colonial architect who planned that residence would have found trouble in recognizing this portion of his work. To make Reed's workroom possible, a good share of the dwelling's interior had been bodily borne out. Its ground was the level of the old cellars, and took up their full extent, which was considerable. All the central part opened upward into a kind of square shaft three stories high, with blank, white sides, whose roof was that enormous cupulae which had so puzzled the station-lounger. To the contractors who did the work, Reed had explained that he required a high, well-enclosed chamber, with plenty of room in it for air circulation. Since first regaining his senses here, Cullen would have said that even more room for air circulation would have been an improvement, a great deal more room. In the service of science, however, men are wont to smile at personal inconvenience. So Reed smiled through the somewhat turgid atmosphere as his prisoner sat up and took cognizance of his strange surroundings. Rather than a workroom, Cullen might have almost thought himself facing the inspiration for some mad poet's dream of Walpurgis night, or for such an artist as Doré to picture a new and more appalling vision of the inferno's lower circles. He saw a dim, marsh-like expanse, whose further boundaries were completely veiled in vapors. 
it extended on three sides of the solid ground that underlay the shaft alone. It was roofed by the black underbeams of the floor above, and out of its mire rose the old granite piles that supported them. That dim expanse must be called swamp or marsh, because a better name has not been made to name it by. But nature never made a marsh like that. Between the granite pillars, fungoids and some kind of whitish vegetation like pale rushes grew thickly. But though those fungoids and rushes had a strangeness of their own, it was not the vegetable growth alone which made Reed's marsh peculiar. Its entire space was a crawl with living forms that for repulsiveness could only be compared to a resurgence from their graves of creatures dead and half-decayed. Cullen saw them by a livid light that by no means increased their beauty, a light that was derived from the fungoids. These singular growths glowed with a whitish-gray effulgence that, diffused by curling vapors, gave the place such a dim illumination as might grace the surface of a witch's cauldron. A cold, dank cauldron it was, with fires pale and heatless as the moon, and giving off with its mist-wraiths the effluvium of decay and of the life that springs from decay. Like some horrible hidden ulcer, Reed's workroom lay festering, and above it the black beams of the old house dripped and rotted with its moisture. Not to Cullen had been the sight of a white marble rotunda, opal-domed, where surrounded by golden thrones a strange marsh glowed. But even had he seen it, that place to this had been homelike, as its white hounds were kindly, friendly beasts compared to the creatures of this. Out from among the slimy rushes and glimmering fungoids, out of the rising whorls of vapor, came a thing. It leaped in one bound from the mire to a scrambling foothold on the firm ground where Cullen sat. Save that it was neither the reptile nor saurian one might expect from such a breeding place, the creature was hard to classify. In color it might have been white, but for the mire in which it had been wallowing. High above four slender legs arched a thin, shaggy back, and beneath a plaster of mud and green slime gaunt ribs stood out like the bones of a beast that has starved to death in the desert. Its head, drooping low at the end of a neck equally gaunt and colloped, had a feline shape. But no honest great cat of the jungle ever owned such eyes. Large, lampant, yellow as topaz, they stared Cullen in the face with a most curiously knowing expression, and its knowledge was solely evil. The brute was silent. In all that place there was no sound but the drip of water, an occasional splash or swishing of the rushes. It was silent and stared him eye to eye. Then the lips drew up in a fiend snarl that disclosed the yellow fangs of a fiend behind. One stiff-legged forward step it took, still staring at its securely bound prey. Sick with repulsion rather than healthy fear, Cullen knew that it meant to spring. This, he thought, was the final revenge Reed had planned for his servant Slayer, to have his throat torn out by those grinning, detestable jaws. By one great effort, and without a word or a glance of appeal to the man beside him, Cullen steadied himself to meet death as he had always met its danger, unswervingly, eye to eye, and face to face.
End of chapter 21「Citadel of Fear」by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear, Chapter 22 A Herder of Goblins. Colin was ready, but in thinking that his death was planned at the jaws of that frightful beast, he had misjudged his captor. Stepping forward, Reed intervened his own person between the flame eyed brute and its purposed victim. Uttering a sharp command, he waved it back. With that left hand of his, that Colin saw very clearly now, was covered with a bulky, white fur glove. The beast's jaws opened wider in a soundless snarl. Then, with a cringing motion, it whirled, leapt, and vanished in the swamp like the gaunt phantom of hunger it resembled. Reed turned. "'They know their master, eh, O'Hara?' "'It seems so.' Colin eyed him sternly. "'What sort of goblin den is it you have here?' "'Goblins! Your Celtic superstition deprives me of credit. What you see is my work. My work. All mine. No supernatural bogey or god or demon lent any help to the creation of these dainty pets. They are mine, the children of my unaided hand and brain. Do you doubt me?' He put the interrogation with an explosive insistence that puzzled Cullen. When he spoke of the workroom as a goblin den, he had used the term in a hyperbolic sense. Despite everything, his preconception of Reed as an experimenter in freak zoology had kept the supernatural from his thoughts, and not even his experience with the luminous, blood-sucking gatekeeper had changed this view. In the steaming jungles between Capricorn and Cancer, he had seen creatures as strange and loathsome. Such a one had Reed found, no doubt, brought it here, and fed it daintily till it throve past the size of its tropical fellows. And he had taken it for granted that the frightful, starved-looking brutes thronging this den were the misbred abortions of more natural beasts. But Reed's words had an effect contrary to their meaning. As if with new vision, Cullen scanned the fetid breeding-ground. The feline brute had hidden itself, but a number of its fellows were distinct in all their grotesquerie. From the pale blob of a thing that lurched past on a bunch of tentacle-like legs, to a creature so buried in mire that only its bony head lay on the surface like the yellowed skull of a horse, all were hideous. But nature herself makes many loathsome forms. It was not their ugliness that enlightened Colin. It was their eyes. Venomous, intelligent, unforgettable, that which looked through them was far removed from the innocent ferocity of wild beasts. They were goblins. And turning from them to their master, he saw in Reed's glance that same stare of naked, demoniacal hate that was in the eyes of his creatures. At Green Gables a white-haired man paced restlessly up and down the library, and as he walked there poured from his lips the pent-up stream of a story so terrible, and at the same time so incredible, that he had dared to tell it to no man before. And in this he was right, for in all America there were but two living men who would have believed. Anthony Rhodes was not one of them, but it was not to Rhodes that he was talking. That level-headed young lawyer sat by the table, 
toying with a paperweight and wondering if there was any risk that the second lunatic he had entertained might become dangerously violent. That the second lunatic claimed to be the father of the first made the tale no more credible. Rhodes could only think of the beautiful Miss Reed with pity, but he saw no reason why he should be called upon to tolerate her equally mad relatives. Perhaps had Rhodes either shared in the fragmentary confidence bestowed by Cullen on his return from Mexico in June, or stood behind a bulging door and watched the white claw of a demon rip through its panels, his credulity might have been greater. To Cleona had been both these experiences. It was to her that the white-haired man talked, and whether Tony were convinced or not bothered her very little just now. In fact, for once Cleona was not thinking of Tony. She was listening with the keenest and most lively attention to the story of Sven de Bjornsson, once adviser to the Council of Sacred Guilds in Telepolan, now a homeless wanderer, trailing an unnameable horror across the earth. It was a trail he had lost, lost very soon after it entered the United States. Only the chance that guided his wanderings to this city had also ordained that he reached there in time to read of the latest ravages at Carpentier. In June he had been on the western coast, whither the purely local excitement over that earlier mystery had never travelled. And yet it had been on some such incident as this bungalow affair that Bjornsson had relied to pick up the trail again. "'I knew,' he said, "'that its ambition had become impatient, that strange, bad events must soon happen because of it.' "'I was sure,' said Cleona, that the thing which came to my door that night had no natural origin." "'Madness! Pure madness!' muttered Rhodes, playing with the paperweight, and wondering if it would be worse for Cleona's nerves to put the stranger out now, or let him go on talking till he began to get dangerous. "'I saw your brother's name in this morning's account,' continued Bjornsson, "'and a reference to what happened in June. I looked that up in the old files at the Daily Record once, and then—then I knew. From what I have already told you, you can imagine how wild with anxiety I have been to find them, and it, the thing they took, I should almost say that escaped with them from Telapalan. I went straight to Carpentier. I suppose your brother was too disturbed and preoccupied to recognize me, and—he laughed shortly. Mr. O'Hara is not a person who is easily stopped when he happens to be in a hurry. By the way, I—the fact is, when your brother does recognize me, he may not exactly meet me with open arms. There was something—a thing I neglected to tell you. At our last parting I did him a very great wrong. That was fifteen years ago, but it was not the kind of wrong that a man forgets. Bjornsson paused somewhat drearily. In spite of his anxiety to find Cullen, enlist his help, and get from him any information he might have acquired, he rather dreaded that moment of recognition. "'Cullen's probably forgotten it,' said Cleona abstractedly. "'He never bears malice long.' Her mind was running back over the man's narrative. "'I tell you, Mr. Bjornsson, there can be no question at all. This reed man with his hints to Colin of strange beasts, with his albino servant, and his daughter, who's so lovely and strange and claims to be no daughter of his, the three of them fit to a tee with what you've been hunting. For the black god you speak of, I do not know. 
Colin said nothing to me of seeing any such carved stone demon out there, and the poor girl, I am afraid we gave her little chance to tell us of anything. You meant well. Oh, I know by your face and your manner and your... your sympathetic comprehension you meant well. You say she seemed in good health, only very mournful. Mournful! How could I make up to her for this last year? I had never thought to be glad for my dear wife's death. But I thank God now that Astrid passed in peace, with the child she loved at her side, to be mourned by many friends. Yes, I am glad she passed before that red knight came to Talapalan. But our poor child! Let me find her again, only let me find her. This won't do." Bjornsson halted and visibly straightened both in spirit and body. "'Personal ties,' he said sternly, "'have a compelling grip, but my duty lies first in another direction. Mr. Rhodes, do you realize that we have to save the world from an invasion atrocious beyond credence? I don't think it has begun yet. I believe, I hope, that we are in time to smother the thing in its infancy.' The priests of Nakakyatl knew the danger. They were very careful to restrict the power they had of it to one certain channel. But it is free now, free, loose in the world with its chosen servants. You may think me mad if you like, but I swear to you that there was, there is, life in that dreadful carved black stone called Nakakyatl. A life that is ambitious and vile, and that chose these vile men I have told you of for the agents of its fiendish ambition and it has an enmity against the human race, an enmity darker and vaster than human enmity could ever be. Can you believe, child, that there are gods of old who still live, old gods and powers that have survived the passing of their worshippers? I can the easier believe in your demon, Cleona said, for the sake of that which came to my door one night. Now, do you really think, Mr. Bjornsson, that it was the porcelain image Colin brought me from Mexico that drew the bad luck to our bungalow? I do, indeed. Then I have no doubt you are right. And I think tis in Reed's house at Undine that you'll find the lair of the evil spirit you are seeking. Cleona! Rhodes! ejaculated Tony, getting to his feet at last and shocked beyond measure by the whole conversation. Cleona O'Hara Rhodes! she corrected him with a sidelong flash of very much excited blue eyes. "'There are things that we Irish are quicker to understand than the rest of the world. You keep out of this, Tony.'" End of chapter 22 Chapter 23 of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear Chapter 23 The Lord of Fear "'Look about you,' said Reed. "'Before I carry out my purpose, there is much for you to see and hear.' Though in Cullen's opinion he had already seen a trifle more than enough, he obeyed Reed's gesture and glanced behind him. After a moment he turned back. "'That is not strange,' he said wearily. That the old black devil himself should preside here is just the most natural thing in the world, Mr. Reed." For some reason Reed's sneering face flooded with angry color. 
I preside here, he snapped. Stand up and turn around, quick, or you'll find a devil in me really to be dreaded. But though Cullen might be foolish enough to believe in demons, he was not a man easily overawed by one. If you wish me to stand, he said quietly, you'll have to be either untying me or helping me up. That leech thing of yours has not left me in just the pink of condition. To feign a greater weakness than he felt was elementary strategy, but to his disgust not much feigning was required. It was all he could do to get on his feet, with Reed's rather grudging assistance, and once up he found himself very wavery and with a painful tendency to buckle at the knees. No sooner was he up than he sat down again, but this time on a chair carved, so near as he could tell, from virgin gold. One does not expect to find solid gold furniture in the midst of a swamp, but neither is it unusual to find a swamp full of fiends in the heart of an old colonial residence. Being past surprise, Cullen viewed his surroundings with interest and let it go at that. The space immediately beneath the shaft, whose square was some twenty-five feet in diameter, had been floored with cement, on a higher level than the marsh, but sweating with dampness from the general moisture. Three sides were open to the swamp, but the fourth was a wall, flush with the side of the shaft above it and pierced by a single broad high doorway. On the cement floor were ranged a number of objects, which, like the chair, seemed to be of astonishing value and entirely out of place. Jars and vessels of massive gold were set about at hazard. Close to Cullen there stood a great lidless chest or box. Its apparent value would have capitalized a bank, but into it there had been tumbled a heap of shabby common things, some dirt-encrusted overalls, an old pair of canvas trousers and the like. A steel spade had been flung in among them so carelessly that its blade had chipped off a long, curling flake of gold. Three solid gold cougars supporting a six-foot basin, like a baptismal font, were impressive, but a stained rubber apron draped over one cougar's head rather spoiled the effect. The only thing here which Cullen considered absolutely and completely appropriate was the squat, polished black statue that crouched on a small dais beneath a canopy of black, with five candles burning on either side of it set on the prongs of two golden candelabra. No evil could be too vile for that ugliest of images to grin at. The head, particularly the mouth, might have been compared to a humanized toad, save that a toad, for all its lack of pulchritude, has a certain honesty of expression. The sculptor of that image had not stopped at frank ugliness. Alert stealth was in the very distension of its nostrils. The eyes were slits, but they were watchful slits. The mouth grinned, but it was a tense, cruel grin that had never heard of humor. With long, treacherous fingers clasped around its knees, the thing squatted naked, having none of those adornments with which religion, barbarous or otherwise, symbolizes the attributes of its deity. The being represented had but one purpose and one end, and of that the face alone was an adequate symbol. As Colin looked, he felt rise up in him such a wave of loathing and detestation as turned him sick. Read, said he, I could forgive you the imps of your quagmire there, and I could forgive you the vile bloodsucker you loosed on me at the gate, 
but the sight of that black inequity you no doubt worship I'll not forgive you. Faith, it'll haunt my dreams if I live to be a hundred." Again Reed flashed into resentment. "'No more of that!' he snarled. "'I worship nothing. Do you understand me? Nothing. Good God! Are you such a blind fool that you fear a chunk of carved marble more than me? I am the Lord of Fear, not Nakak Yaotl. Who did you say? A word, a name is, at the least when you stop to think of it, a potential force. At best and strongest it may have the power of magic. For Cullen the years dropped away like a falling screen. Afloat on a sea of light he raised his eyes to a dark cliff crowned by a monstrous building, blind, pallid, oppressive in its mere appearance. "'It is the seat of Nakok said a girl's voice. "'Nakok maker of hatreds, who would destroy mankind if he could!' "'Nakok Reed's impatient voice reached Colin through time and dragged him back to the present. "'One phase of an old Aztec god! Lord, you look stupid when you gape like that! The years have certainly brought you no increase of intelligence, friend Boots!' Cullen's mouth shut with a snap. "'Archer Kennedy!' he ejaculated. "'It was the beard and the glasses that did it. That, and thinking you a dead man long ago. You can tell me, then, what I've been wondering about for fifteen years, more or less. Was Tlapalan a real city, or did I dream it?' It is very tiresome, when one is trying to impress a man with the horror of one's malicious power, to be regarded as a mere purveyor of information. To Archer Kennedy the distinctly impersonal nature of Cullen's first question was irritating to the point of insult. In the days of their earlier acquaintance his chief grievance against the Irish lad had been a trick he had of ignoring him as a personality. As Chester Reed, man of mystery, Cullen had given promise of at least according him the respect of hatred. Identified as Kennedy, that old manner had instantly returned. A pinprick, of course, but this man's nature was not only malicious. Its malice was of the shallow type that resents pinpricks more than blows. Talapalan, he said between his teeth, was real once, but it's nothing now. Do you know who destroyed it? Nakakyatl, inquired Cullen, with deep interest. Rather to his amazement, the reply was a heavy blow across the mouth. "'You utter dolt!' raged Kennedy. "'Mention Nakakyaotl again, and I'll have you dragged to the middle of that swamp and left there bound for my servants to devour. I caused the ruin of Tlapalan. And I drained it first of a knowledge that makes me your master, as it will make me master of the world in my day of triumph.' Cullen said nothing. The man who had struck him he remembered as too insignificant and absurd even to be seriously angry with. As for the grandiloquent claim he made, Cullen took no stock in it. But Nakakiotl was another matter. From the haunting glare of the goblin creatures he looked to the slit-eyed watchfulness of that more terrible though seemingly inanimate demon, and he knew that this business was between him and them. What was it Bjornsson had said before he turned him out to die, as he thought, in the desert? To prevent a possible thing that I dare not speak of, 
I would condemn myself as readily as you. For I know that Nakakiato grows restive." Was this what he had meant? Had the evil power that laired in that pallid, enormous building above the lake desired a freedom greater than Talapalan allowed? And had it achieved that desire? There is a prophecy, the moth-girl had said, that some day Nakakiato will destroy Talapalan, but I do not believe it. Quetzalcoatl, noblest of all the gods, is stronger than he. But the city that swam in a lake of light was no more. He himself had beheld the dark tarn that filled the hollow of the hills it had glorified. And Quetzalcoatl, the rival god, the image he had brought thence, twice broken and the third time utterly shattered through invasions which he now certainly knew to have emanated from this house. Cullen's imagination was racing now. It produced a dozen half-lost memories and flung them together in a most appalling pattern. And back of all the horror a joy was hiding, a joy that in the flying confusion of his thoughts he could not at first identify. Then suddenly the pattern was set. Everything fell into order, and seated as he believed between the devil and his fiend-eyed offspring, Cullen caught the greatest joy of his life and knew the most rapturous relief. His dusk lady was not mad. Were anyone crazy, it was himself for so believing her. The strange, elfin look of her beauty, the low, musical voice that was if a thrush should speak, the fine, level courage of her, to be disconcerted neither by her own danger nor the killing of a man she loathed. Only one girl he had met in his life had shared those qualities, and though to Cullen the moth-girl had been a pretty dream, where the dusk lady was an all-engrossing reality, the race resemblance was strong enough for him to have placed and understood her, had he not been such an utter and prejudiced fool. She was a child of Telepolan, and though he doubted if her race were entirely human, that was a matter of no consequence. Hadn't an ancestor of his married an elf-woman that he met on the Leith itself? And hadn't she been a good wife to him, and his own, Cullen's great-grandmother, on his mother's side? Suddenly Cullen realized that Kennedy was speaking, had been speaking, in fact, for some time. End of chapter 23《Chapter Twenty Four of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear, Chapter Twenty Four A Lonely Traveller. Across the rough ground of an empty field two miles beyond Undine, a dark figure stumbled and panted beneath the unheeding stars. Once or twice it fell among the hard rows of old, dry corn stubble. One might have thought it some strayed child, lost in the night, but the figure was too tall, too slimly graceful beneath its flowing outer garment of black. It was a weary, courageous figure that had come far, far, and all the way on foot. For the bright galleys of Telepolan were the only means of travel that slim figure knew till its time of grief and in the one long terrible journey across the outer world it had learned little, by reason of being kept close by enemies. 
but to Telepolan's children were certain birthrights. No homing pigeon could have come more sure and true than that slim, tired one that stumbled among the stubble rows. The night was not so still as it had been. A wind was rising. It blew in sudden gusts, like the breath of an invisible giant. The long cloak flapped and struggled, wrapping hinderingly about the wearer's limbs. Away to one side blazed the lights of the chateau-like farmhouse of whose acres the stubble-field was a part. The house was full of flowers, lights, and laughing people, for its owners were entertaining many guests that night. But the cloaked one was no guest of theirs. In a desperation of thwarted haste it stumbled on, as indifferent to the gay human throng in the distant house as the stars were indifferent to itself. End of chapter 24